economy is actually the word that the that my protagonists use themselves. And I've always found sort of in intellectual history, uh, this is always the uh, the most uh, desirable uh, way in which you can categorize what what they're saying. I mean, of course, there's also double speak, which one one has to deal with. But it's interesting because it's a coinage of their own. Right? So it's a, it's a key word. In other words, it's uh, it's not sort of a systematic ideology, but it's something that that brings together a number of ideas that emerged primarily in areas that had been part of the Bombay or Madras presidency. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Lake Podcast, where we speak to authors who have just published books covering South Asia. I'm your host, Karthik Nachib. Almost exactly a decade ago, I sat in a PhD seminar on the history of modern India in London, where we were covering the impact of British colonialism on early Indian politics and policies that was largely dominated by the Congress Party and Jawaharlal Nehru. The literature covered in class that afternoon was rather one-dimensional, not to the fault of historians who wrote some terrific pieces, but the literature presented a politics in India that was socialist and social democratic with the state at the commanding heights of the economy and society. Recourse was coming, though, the instructor told us, through a scholar whose new research on C. Rajagopalachari and the Sutantra Party would reveal the rise and prominence of an economic conservatism in early post-independent India. Well, that work and book is now here through Aditya Balasubramanian's fascinating study on the Swatantra Party that promised and espoused an alternate economic idea in India in the 1950s and 60s, one that promised a free economy for all Indian citizens. The party's message and advocacy was forged in the crucible of Indian democracy, its opposition politics, through which ideas and views on the economy was conveyed by the party through issues like inflation, taxation, and property rights. Rather innovatively, Balasubramaniam uses films, caricatures, short stories, journal, and different tracks to show the rich post-colonial political conjuncture that allowed alternate political and market-centric ideas to flourish in India. Here's Aditya Balasubramanian, lecturer in economic history at Australian National University, on his first book, Toward a Free Economy, Swatantra and Opposition Politics in Democratic India, published by Princeton University Press in July 2023. Thank you so much for for um, for joining us. Um, I, I want to start by asking you uh, how this project began. Um, what strands, ideas, uh, and seeds led you down this path? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say a huge you know, thank you, Karthik. I mean, it's a great privilege to be on the Lake Podcast, and you know, in the past, I've enjoyed listening to it. So I know it takes a, a lot of hard work to put together. So uh, I've done a couple of podcasts of my own. With, 
far more intermittently. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. So, yeah. So to your question, uh, so I'm a, you know, Indian American born in, you know, 1990 and raised overseas primarily in the U S or I suppose the, uh, more colloquial terminology is American born confused Desi or complex Desi as it were. Um, so I seen, you know, certain features of India's liberalization firsthand on annual visits to India when I would uh, spend time with my extended family. Um, and so, you know, I would get these year by year snapshots, right. And so I, I, you know, as a, as a, as a kid uh, reared in like 1990s America, uh, the steady entrance of multinationals, sort of influx of cable television or to network, you know, and also the, you know, the understanding of 1991 as a watershed in the country's history among you know, managerial elites, uh, you know, who I encountered uh, and the growing import of IT services to the Indian economy. And my uncle set up a kind of IT services business. These were things that I observed and I, I think they left their early impression on me. But as a sort of formal historical inquiry, this project started uh, when I was an undergraduate. So I was interested in the relationship between uh, India and the United States, and in particular, the American economist John Kenneth Galbraith's time as ambassador to India during the 1960s. Uh, and what was interesting to me was that Galbraith had actually come to India previously to consult for the planning commission. Uh, and despite being a Keynesian, he was quite critical of some of the status dimensions of Indian policy, especially the railways. Um, and I think that line of inquiry, as we're spending time in the in the Kennedy Library uh, in Boston, <clears throat> I also read some of the newspaper clippings from that time. And I found that there was a conservative critique of Indian economic policy that was voiced by Indians themselves rather than foreign experts, which I found you know far more interesting. Um, and from that was born a project that, was about the Swatantra party and and I just kind of ran with it and it became a, a PhD dissertation and you know I suppose that now my my first book so so that's the sort of origin story as it were. Uh, I, I must confess the first time I heard about your work was in London and I was in a class um, it was a PhD seminar with Sunil Karnani uh, and we were talking about the history of modern India uh, and we were reading a lot of texts, and there was a critique uh, by one of my classmates who mentioned that there's not much um, literature from the right. right. There's not much ideas about whether there was there was any um, thinkers or whether there were any schools of thought who were thinking more about conservative economic principles and and how and whether that mattered in India. Uh, and then he mentioned that, like, you know, there's this one student at, at, at Cambridge who's, who's working on this, uh, and, and he's writing his thesis on, on I think he mentioned it was Rajaji back then, but right. obviously the book has evolved sure. um, since then um, into something more. Um, but before I get to the book, I want, which is about economic conservatism in India, I want to just maybe take a step back and, and you know, look at the literature of India's political economy, yep. which is which is very statist, with very heavy, heavily state oriented. Right. Uh, and I'm wondering why is this the first book, um, as far as I can tell, from a conservative economic uh, standpoint, um, yep. and understanding India's uh, development and India's political economy, or or or, or is it? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, that's very generous of, of, of Sunil to say those things about my my work when it was in its origins. And he had the the sort of uh, 
the, the, the task, uh, the tribulation of having to examine the thesis um, some, some, some years after that. Um, so I, w- I think there are a couple of things uh, that I would say uh, in terms of reasons for this. Uh, I think in the, in the last uh, several years, we have seen a few works on conservatism in India. Uh, we have a work by Shapandas Gupta. We have a book. Um, it's a little more popular by J- uh, J- Jerry Rao, uh, the businessman, and then you know some, you know, uh, articles by uh, Christophe Jaffrelo, Gilles Bernier, and a few others on conservatism. But it's kind of sort of shape shifting in a manner of speaking, which I suppose is uh, consistent with cons- the nature of conservatism itself. It's conservative relative to what, uh, but. I take your point about the the absence of literature uh, on the right, uh, just more broadly, and I think that there are a few reasons for this. Uh, I think the first is just uh, more more generally, there is a, a paucity of history after of India after 1947. Um, then that sort of traditionally evaded the scholarly gaze, although that's changing. We have books like Rohit Day's People's Constitution. We have uh, Taylor Sherman's uh, new book. Uh, we have various people working. I mean, we have uh, Abhishek Chaudhary's new biography of Vajpayee, for example. Um, but in general, uh, there are a lot of to- topics that have been left uh, unstudied. You know, do we have a book on the linguistic reorganization of states written by a historian? No, I mean, it's a pretty substantial development in India's uh, history. Right? In part, that's because, as as, as a, you know, my friend and, and colleague Dinyar Patel has written about, File transfers from government of India departments to the National Archives and state archives have been erratic, right? In fact, so apart from the Ministry of External Affairs, which is actually pretty good about doing that, and I mean, it was perhaps one of the reasons why I suppose the most vibrant field of post-colonial South Asian history is its international history, is because you have those those sources. Um, but compared to the rather more complete India office records for the colonial period, um, the post-colonial materials are more fragmented, uh, less extensive, and, and quite frankly, harder to use. So that's that's one dimension. Um, but there's also a sort of question of of you know the, the interests of historians, and with the cultural cultural turn in history, I think a number of questions about political economy were cast aside. Right? Um, I think that the way in which political economy was studied in other fields was pretty much based on kind of interest groups. Um, and it, it didn't really take ideology very seriously, right? Um, and so you have, you know, you know, fantastic work by you know, the likes of, you know, Francine Frankel, Howard Erdman, uh, I mean, the, the list, Paul Brass, the list goes, the, the, the Rudolphs, um, but they're not that interested in in, in ideology, right? Um, and similarly, I think economic conservatism was understood to be unworthy of intellectual exploration, kind of seen to be reactionary, right? Uh, at, Economic history became the domain of economists, right? And then there's also a question of labels, right? I use the terminology of economic conservatism historically to describe a set of people who embraced a set of ideas or that were you know, consonant with policies that were less disruptive of the social order than most of their contemporaries, right? But today's folks who embrace such ideas, right, even ones who sort of pick up the legacy of the Swatantra Party and this kind of thing, call themselves liberals, right? And they orient themselves into a kind of, uh, uh, you know, ahistorical and kind of idealized Western classical liberalism, right? So in fact, when the first article from this project came out, um, uh, one of the, the, you know, the son of one of the protagonists of my study, um, Zarir Masani, son of Minu Masani said, no, 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 there's no way in which you can call these people conservatives, right? 
um, and and he was sort of offended at that. Right? Um, uh, the other point is so that methodologically, that you know, in light of the sort of cultural turn, and then you know, maybe re-examining some questions, you know, the, the historical profession post two thousand eight turned back to some kinds of uh, economic history is to try to bring cultural and social history or the methods from those fields uh, into the study of of political economy. Um, how much of it was also the context? The 1950s, yeah. uh, India was, was just nearly independent. It was in a pretty fragile state. You had hundreds of millions of people who were destitute. And, and you sort of needed a, a state, a state that could yeah. not just take care of the people, but also kind of drive uh, development um, over, the, over the early decades. Um, was that part of why a lot of the thinking didn't emerge and evolve as well? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, um, Karthik. I think the the idea is also that, look, in the 1950s, the dominant uh, understandings about political economy, not merely in India, but around the world, are statist, right? You have a sort of paradigm shift towards Keynesianism, and you have people trying to think about the implications of Keynesian economic policy for uh, for for developing countries, uh, on both sides of the Iron Curtain, uh, you have uh, statist models of development, whether that is the sort of Rostovian uh, big push uh, sort of promulgated by the U.S. and its allies, or the sort of heavy industry-based uh, planning uh, of, of the Soviet Union. So that is very much the dominant uh, sort of mode of paradigm of thinking globally. And then within India, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have a uh, you have a you know desperately desperately poor country. So we, if you want to think about the principles of economic freedom and uh, you know the idea of pursuing unfettered business, well, quite frankly, uh, the business requires the state in many ways to uh, organize conditions for it to pursue its economic activity. Which is why in the 1940s, when you have the uh, the the Bombay Plan, which is written uh, before any five-year plan, in fact becomes the foundations in some ways for the first five-year plan, it accepts um, part of this is, of course, capitalists trying to preempt uh, even more interventionist sort of policy being written while the you know mainstream Congress leaders are in jail and kind of get a first mover advantage. But part of it is just recognizing that, look, in order to industrialize, we're going to need machinery for which we don't have the resources. We're going to need the active involvement in this of the state in helping to facilitate that. So, so what happened in the 1950s then? What happened with this, or with, with the erosion yeah. of this uh, ISI model that the mayoral government had initiated? What was it about that model and its erosion that allowed uh, alternate forces like the Sotantra Party to rise? Yeah, so maybe I'll just take a step back just to kind of clarify a little bit about what about ISI and whatnot for people who might not be kind of familiar with it. So yeah, so Broadly, India pursues a sort of an alphabet soup, but heavy industry led, right? Capital goods based program of import substituting industrialization that were organized around these five year plans, right? Um, and the motivation then is to industrialize and become self sufficient rather than, as in the colonial era, remain kind of an exporter of you know, agricultural or, or goods and commodities and an importer of finished goods and therefore you know, be vulnerable to the vicissitudes of the global market, right? When prices are high, you do well. When prices are low, you kind of suffer, right? And the Great Depression was a was a terrible experience in South Asia, right? Um, 
but of course the and the you know the uh the idea that you know the, the resources for this planning and the idea that focusing on capital goods would in then in turn create spillover effects right multiplier effects that would then drive the production of consumer goods that linkage didn't quite pan out right uh, and so the second plan period of 1956 to 61 was when uh the import substitution sort of model was first uh, implemented in any serious way. Uh, some of the required resources came from foreign aid from both sides of the Iron Curtain. But the foreign exchange resources for importing machinery and such were inadequate. And in fact, there's like a, uh, what I think it's like a 5% unfunded deficit in the plans that was just sort of accepted. And the idea was like, well, we'll improvise as we go. And so by the late 50s, you have a situation whereby, although India is succeeding in some of its industrial ambitions, it does consolidate a heavy industrial base. Uh, and India, to its credit, you know, I know this is sometimes forgotten, it doesn't become a sort of plantation. You know, people talk about Korea and, and, and Japan, but the, the other alternative was for India to become, you know, a Jamaica or a sort of Caribbean type of plantation economy. So it avoided that as well. Um, but the country is not producing enough food. Um, it has serious foreign exchange constraints, and there's a rising deficit that helps to foment inflation. Um, accompanying this strategy and what drives the sort of critique uh, is a strategy for the control of business and the rise of government bureaucracy under a mixed economy framework of public and private sectors. Right? So you have mandatory industrial licensing and export permits. You have government control of key commodities like food to the extent that some of the control is sort of draconian, right? You can read in Rohit Day's book about uh, the way in which commodities are controlled in which in case you want to kind of learn about all the contours of that. But all of these become features of life in the Indian plant economy, right? And the advent of the state and economic life also means uh, the advent of indirect taxation to help finance itself over time because, you know, income tax, uh, on average incomes that are so low mean that direct tax collection is going to be a very dubious proposition, right? And so it was in this context that criticisms from economic conservatives arise, right? So in terms of the Indian National Congress, right, I think it's important to recognize as an umbrella organization that represents a wide range of political positions from left to right, right? Um, And there's a prominent right wing of the party that's controlled by Sardar Patel that's left leaderless after he dies in 1950. Uh, this enables Nehru to assert his leadership and imprint some of his ideas, but never complete control, right? Because the numerical balance in, of power in the Congress organization is such that Nehru can never get the more radical things he wants done faced with the predominance of these conservative interests. And so he attempts to bureaucratize economic policy as much as po- possible, which alienates business interests in the party. And so when, in terms of the uh, agrarian policy, they, you know, some of these land reform measures have failed. And so there's a discussion of cooperative farming with corresponding implications for land. The conservative or agrarian interests lose faith and segments of both business and conservative agrarian interests kind of come together to birth Swatantra. Uh, so I'm going to move the book now. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about Swatantra and its yeah. politics. Uh, before that, the, the book is called Towards a Free Economy. Um, maybe just start off by telling our listeners, what do you mean by free economy? Sure. Um, free economy is actually the word that the that my protagonists use themselves. And I've always found sort of in intellectual history, uh, this is always the, uh, the most uh, desirable uh, way in which you 
can categorize what what they're saying. I mean, of course, there's also double speak, which one one has to deal with. But it's interesting because it's a coinage of their own, right? So it's a, it's a key word. In other words, it's uh, it's not sort of a systematic ideology, but it's something that that brings together a number of ideas that emerged primarily in areas that had been part of the Bombay or Madras presidency, which uh, in the colonial period, which are bordered by the Arabian Sea and Indian Ocean and have these long traditions of overseas trades, as you can kind of read about in this, you know, flourishing scholarship on the Indian Ocean, and which goes back to the kind of early modern period. Uh, during the colonial era, these two presidencies are governed by a land tenure system whereby revenue is collected at a slightly lower rate than in the other uh, regimes directly from the landowning peasant without intermediaries. And on average, the holding sizes are smaller than in the Zamindari or the Mahalwari areas. Of course, that's more of an ideal type. There were certainly a lot of inequality between the you know, the small Rayatwari, uh, the you know, uh, landowner and the large one. And there's a whole, you know, wide range of, you know, specialized tenurial arrangements. But this is broadly... Um, the, the way in which things operate and also the way in which these in, in, you know, constituencies self-identify. You know, we are pat- landowning peasant proprietors, right? Um, and there's a sort of range of ideas that free economy connotes, but what they have in common was a certain you know, sort of four characteristics, right? These are sort of elementary aspects, as it were. Um, anti-communism, right? a belief in unfettered private economic activity, Commitment to decentralization, as opposed to this kind of top-down, big uh, gigantism of official policy, and the defense of private property. Right? Uh, so, to be sure, of course, the conventional characterization of Swatantra Party sort of relies is about how it relies on zamindars and maharajas and states like Rajasthan for votes. But I think that masks the more important and more interesting story about the change that's taking place in these regions um, as they move from uh, purely agrarian uh, you know, uh, political economies and embrace uh, capitalist and mercantile activity. Um, so the question of, you know, how does, what, what does this mean sort of politically? So I think free economy suffused every aspect of what I call Swatantra's opposition politics, right? So there's sort of three ways in which that happens. So first it, it becomes the notion um, the basis for the notion that a conservative party is needed to bring ideological balance to the electoral politics uh, of India, and to f- and 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 its free economy is posed against socialist economy, right? Um, and there's a way in which that invokes the freedom movement, right? And the I, there's also the idea that you're freeing India from what Siraj Gopalachari, who's the co-founder of and a veteran kind of ex-Congress politician, calls the permit license Raj or the sort of oligarchic coalition of interest between big business, right? The Congress party's uh, top brass uh, or Congress party politicians, and then uh, bureaucrats who distribute the the permits and licenses. Uh, So the second way in which free economy suffuses opposition politics is that it becomes the key agenda around the Sotantra party's project of communicating ideas of economic education and mobilizing the electorate especially around issues of excess taxation and inflation. And finally, it's the basis for the right to property cases in the Supreme Court, which is part of a vision to use the legislature and judiciary to exert checks and balances on the party in power, uh, to sort of punch above your weight, given that you have a small number of seats in parliament. Um, 
did they make a distinction between free economy and free market? And, yeah. and also, they, they had, did they talk about free trade at all? Or yeah. what was the purpose of um, more, um, what was, was the purpose of having economic freedom was to produce goods and services that could be exported abroad, right? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say a couple of things. Um, I think there's a distinction to be drawn from between free economy and free market. Uh, and in that free markets, uh, a free economy is not about the, the design of market systems uh, and the way in which they should be uh, organized in a way uh, to sort of you know, produce the conditions for perfect competition, right? Um, there's, you know, for example, if we think about Quinn Slobodian's work, on neoliberalism, a lot of it is about how a legal order can be created so that markets work by a particular script. We don't see any of that. Um, and it's important here to note that this is a book about informal thinkers, right? About politicians and publicists rather than theorists. Right? There's only one person who has any real dealings with the academy. And it's somebody who like had trouble getting a PhD and is much more accomplished as a polemicist than as an economist is B.R. Chanoy, right? Um, although he has a, an academic credential. So free economy is far less systematic and there are different iterations in which it can be variously compatible with kinds of state intervention. Um, so for example, in in uh, the ideas of N.G. Ranga, uh, who writes a book called The Credo of World Peasantry, he's all about creating a global system for guaranteed minimum support prices for agriculture across the world. Um, which, of course, would be good for his sort of Kulak, uh, you know, ready uh, support base, or Kaman ready support base in, in, you know, what was then Andhra. So, and that, whereas if you look at a figure like Minu Masani, uh, he is all about, you know, he had, writes this book called Our Growing Human Family, which is sort of valorization of free trade uh, and India becoming uh, an exporter in the global system. Uh, but if you think about a figure like Raj Gopalachari, uh, he virtually never talks about free trade, right? So again, there are certain certain you know the dimensions in which you have folks who are uh, wedded to ideas like you know free trade, but then you have others who um, view this much more skeptically. This is much more about you know de designing domestic policies that are less constraining of um, you know indigenous capitalism. It, it also struck me that they did not think deeply about the uh, relationship between economics and law, um, which is something that, that neoliberals have been doing since the 1970s or so. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and it's interesting, especially in light of the fact that uh, folks like Minu Masani and Rajko Valachari are trained as lawyers, right? So... And sorry, one more question on the party, and then can maybe, maybe move on to some of the other figures and ideas, is, is that they also did not focus more on the materialities of, of the middle class and, and what, um, sorry, they did focus more on the materialities of the middle class and not other aspects which also affected people's lives and livelihoods like caste, class, uh, gender, and some of the other identity issues which were also relevant. Do you think that's why they were maybe not as politically successful as they would have been? Yeah, so I think that, you know, very often, sometimes the question is asked, you know, why did the Swatantra party 
disintegrate. Right? I think the I think in some sense for me the more interesting question is why did the Swatantra Party ever exist in the first place? If you look at the the coalition, it's a pretty disparate, odd bunch of people that come together. And so I, I think that they, they do have a class politics and they and they are trying to create a uh, a middle class politics in a country, but they're not quite sure what that is. And you know, given their own social positioning, uh, what they consider the def- definite, you know, uh, differing and confused art- articulation of what a middle class is, which is you know everything from a you know educated professional living in a city uh, to a farmer that makes you know a small you know, a certain amount of money. Uh, these are all you know, in no way the middle of the income distribution in India. Um, and so what they're trying to do is to create an idealized vision uh, of a constituency that doesn't really have a mass base. But at the same time, right, uh, there are ways in which this class politics is able to uh, bring together people who are in all to all different parts of the country in ways in which, for example, your DMK or some other group would not be able to do, right? Uh, or your, you know, Akali Dal, etc. Um, and so that's, you know, one dimension of this. A second dimension of this is that, you know, this is a this is a party of the haves rather than the have-nots that are responding to changes in, in political economy. So the idea that, and so they make attempts, as I described in the book, to try to uh, move beyond uh, this, but yes, it is a limited kind of popular imaginary, which you know may have more success in the 2020s, uh, which may you know account for some of the Swatantra revivalism discourse that you see uh, with a again elite class uh, of, of what are known as the the new middle classes that have sprung up, but back then don't really map onto a concrete constituency. But I think also the you know unwillingness to talk about issues like caste uh, identity and, and and you know confront and and essentially the you know the view of of women as a, a subordinate uh, rather than independent economic actors of their own right comes from I think uh, their origins in the in the in the freedom movement in which in which there were was participation of women there was participation of 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 people from various uh, castes and classes, but it was subsumed around a you know unitary nationalist ideal, right? And I think that that is something, especially given the connections of a number of these folks to Gandhian politics, is something that they retain. It's also, and I might add, uh, we might come to this a little later. Also, what uh, you know allows them to kind of consciously eschew a politics of you know religious majoritarianism. Uh, how did Nehru regard the party? What was his his views, opinions about this particular movement, as it were? Yeah, so Nehru's Nehru's view of the Swatantra Party uh, has, in a way, kind of overdetermined uh, the historiography of the Swatantra Party. Uh, he believed that this is a party of the ninth of ghosts. Uh, he ta- thought talked of the Swatantra Party as one that has not quite moved out of the nineteenth century. That this is a party of of laissez faire. Um, but, and that, you know, he saw it as a, as a bit of a, um, he said, but, you know, this is the party that is a party of ghosts, but it might be, you know, it might become a nuisance. Uh, and it certainly did in the 67 elections. Um, what I think Nehru failed to appreciate was a sort of heterogeneity, uh, of the groups that come to come together as part of the Sotantara party. But to Nehru's credit, um, he was not in any way interested in strangling the opposition, uh, I think this was a, a period in which he very 
very much in, in numerous instances talks about the importance of having um, a strong and vibrant in, in opposition in a democracy. And and that, you know, again, uh, just to, to bring up Abhishek Chaudhary's book again, this is somebody who is also interested in sending, you know, Vajpayee, uh, to overseas uh, del- in, as part of overseas Indian delegations because he believes opposition should be represented. This is somebody you know, in his first cabinet has you know people like uh, Ambedkar and S. P. Mukherjee. Uh, so this understanding that this is a young democracy and there is a certain kind of role that a dominant party has to play in terms of trying to accommodate this diversity uh, for the benefit of 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 the sort of you know the, the future of the electorate. So. Books come alive through figures, even though you're writing larger stories. Uh, there are certain individuals which, which capture attention. Um, can you talk to us about the Lotwalas, um, yep. who they were, um, what were they doing, and, and how did they spread their ideas? Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably my, my favorite find of the book was discovering this Lotwala family uh, who... Uh, Basically, you know, they're they're a sort of Sindhi, uh, well, from from Sindh uh, originally, you know, the, the, in the in the early modern period, uh, from the Lohana caste, uh, and they moved to uh, what is you know what 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 was the region of Gujarat, um, and in the 19th century they moved to Bombay, uh, and they are grain traders, you know, or flower traders, you know, lot lot means flower in Gujarati. Um, and they essentially operate a, uh, they come to operate a flour mill. Um, and Ranchordas was the sort of patriarch or the sort of scion of the, of the family born in, in 1875, essentially acquires a number of mills and mechanizes them and gets basically huge contracts during World War I to supply to the army and becomes incredibly wealthy. Uh, and he, you know, sort of one of the symbol of these, one of these new kind of nuclear families of early 20th century Bombay that have become prosperous. Uh, but he uses his, he's somebody who's uh, grown up with, with a kind of Arya Samaj background, who's very interested in like public life, uh, joins the Gurjar Sabha, which is an association for debating um, uh, and, and the sort of support of the Gujarati language. And so he's interested in the he's sort of a member of the he's, you know he's a, a prominent member of the public he's a public figure um who is most interested in, as a pat in being a patron for radical causes and so he actually becomes the most prominent uh sponsor of communism in india uh in the in the 1910s and 20s uh, and so he's actually the, the the person who pays for the education of S.A. Dange. Um, he helps publish the first Indian edition of the Communist Manifesto. Um, and then he, and he's also involved in sponsoring and patronizing Vital Bhai Patel, uh, the brother of Sardar Patel, uh, who's you know part of the um, you know the No Changers in Congress, um, you know against the the extremists of you know, the likes of Tilak and such, um, and. He is, but but he's also somebody who's very interested in various kinds of um, social progress. He's someone who um, his wife dies quite young, but he has is generally quite open about uh, the kinds of uh, uh, pursuits of his daughters. They're both well educated. One of them becomes a the first woman who's elected to Bombay Municipal Council. Uh, his daughter uh, Kusum, uh, who becomes his, uh, I suppose. Uh, great collaborator in his work 
uh, is a is an accomplished badminton player. Uh, his son marries a, a Muslim woman who's his badminton mate, uh, not uh, uh, Kishore, and you know he has this you know extraordinary life. Um, by the nineteen late nineteen twenties, with the purges uh, of Stalin in the in, and you know the expulsion of Trotsky and the purges by Stalin, the Soviet Union, he sort of becomes disgruntled with socialism, uh, communism, and then socialism. And then he begins this, starts to read a lot of utopian uh, anarchist literature, um, and slowly moves rightwards, right? And then with intensifying uh, vigor. Um, And so by the 1940s, this is somebody who starts to believe that India's major problem is not so much caste, which he believes is being dissolved, which of course is not true. um, But he believes that it's about, okay, how do we organize uh, the political economy, reorganize India's political economy, um, and how do we, you know, develop the country. Um, And he becomes quite interested in anarchist individualism uh, that's being practiced in the United States and rural decentralist policy um, uh, that is sketched particularly by a rather obscure figure called Ralph Bersodi in America, who's an advertising man who then starts to run these model communities um, that are, you know, on the principles of decentralization. Uh, and then he becomes, through the Foundation for Economic Education in New York and coming across some of their literature, becomes very invested in, kind of, uh, you know, libertarianism. Um, and he repurposes his Indian Institute for Sociology um, to into this organization called uh, the Libertarian Socialist Institute, which he then drops the IST and becomes a libertarian social institute. Um, and he brings all this literature from the United States of, of varying degrees, I mean, the left, right, et cetera, um, to his library uh, and to his uh, libertarian press, which then kind of publishes and sends to you know, various libraries and, and schools across India um, and tries to bring you know, lecturers and, and whatnot to his, uh, to his institute in Bombay. And along with his by this time he's quite old his daughter kusum kind of is the is the sort of life lifeblood of the organization and makes it kind of viable um how do they spread and and, and they become seized of this idea of of free economy um which is quite vague in their coinage it's just something that is decentralized it's something that uh doesn't allow the monopoly of any one class i mean these are more slogans but actually, if you kind of look at the kinds of things that the Lotbalas are reading, they're exceptionally uh, sort of, you know, list of a, a wide range of references, everybody from Prince Kropotkin to Friedrich von Hayek. Um, so they have a, a set of ideas, but they're just not particularly clear or coherent about expressing it. And so what they are, uh, I suppose, more... Uh, uh, more good at doing is to kind of create enthusiasm around an alternative set of ideas. And this is done through their magazine, the Indian Libertarian, which is <clears throat> plugged into a network of journals and associations, right, that are all kind of broadly anti-communist in orientation. They're kind of concerned about the statist contours of Indian economic policy and the in- intensifying Cold War, um, but they all have their own different takes on how, how to do this. Um, and when I say that uh, these, this you know, set of associations is connected, it's that they correspond with each other. Uh, they publish each other's journals. And these are titles like um, 
the Indian Rationalist, uh, which is being published out of uh, of Madras, Chennai. Um, we're talking about things like uh, Mice India, which is being edited by this lapsed uh, communist called Philip Spratt in Bangalore. Um, we're talking about organizations like the Forum of Free Enterprise, which is you know, financed originally by the Tatas, but taken up by um, you know a range of people uh, from the Parsi community of Bombay. Um, and kind of together, they make up more than the sum of their parts. Um, and so free economy kind of spreads. Um, and then it gets picked up by uh, in a journal called Swaraja, which is uh, associated with Siraj Gopalachari, and then kind of becomes attached to a, a formal political cause. Um, the reason why I, you know, well, one of the well, the, the reasons why I, this was a little bit difficult to write is because the the uh, Lotwalas didn't really leave any papers, and they have very faint traces. Um, I didn't have a chance to write as much as I wanted about Kusum, but really, you know, the, the thing is, no Kusum no libertarian social institute. Uh, and I think it points to some of the gender dynamics of the history of free economy, which is that women are always there. They're always significant, but they're persistently kind of subordinated and uh, silenced uh, in a manner of speaking. Um, as, 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 as I was reading about them, I was, I was struck by their allegiance to firms and individuals. Yeah. Um, and which which is which is really quite different from the thinking and ideas about libertarian philosophy you read today. You know, people like Tyler Cohen, for example, yeah. um, he's just written a book about uh, big business, how we should support big business and we should be more um, open to, to big businesses, uh, not thinking clearly or openly about the, the sort of fears and their dangers. Uh, did did the lowballers think about this issue about the private concentration of power, and was that why they were more attached to to forums and individuals? Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's uh, you know, it was, actually you mentioned Tyler Cowen; he was very graciously <laughs> wrote that the book was recommended and what wrote about it on his blog. Um, but yeah, I think that there there are a few things. I think the influence of utopian socialist thought. Um, and anarchism uh, is really important because they're very, very susceptible, you know, uh, skeptical of concentrations of power, right? Uh, uh, and 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 that's something that that originally turns them toward libertarianism. Um, they are very conscious of the fact, and in fact, one of the letters that uh, Lord Bala writes to uh, either K. M. Munshi or M. A. Master, the former free enterprise, he's just laments the facts that the Indian capitalists are such a spineless class that they're so in bed with the Congress, and he particularly, you know, um, lambasts the Billas for this, right? Um, so he's very much interested in, you know, the, the, the small entrepreneurs. Schumpeter is someone who whose works make their way across, uh, you know, across the seas to Lotbala, and the idea of you know, the small business entrepreneur, you know, it's just stuff that you, you hear a lot in, in Republican conventions in the U.S. Uh, this sort of vision of small business uh, run country is very much what they're, what they're after. Uh, but it's worth noting that, look, by, by the end, they begin to think that the, the state in India is a worse enemy than big capital, and they make some peace with it. And this is the compromise. Um, I, you know, I, was, I, was, I was looking at the book, and you, you mentioned sources earlier. Um, and, and in terms of the kind of archival materials, most of them have been kind of collected from the US, UK, 
Um, but you've also gone into Nair Memorial Library and the Tamanadu State Archives. Are there other more regional archives in India that could have also contributed to the story that you're writing? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So yeah, I would say that the I would say the biggest collections that were used. A note on sources I've written at the end of the book. The biggest collection mm -hmm. of sources are actually from uh, the Nehru Library and uh, and the National Archives. And those are the mm -hmm. private collections of K M Munshi and C Rajko Palachari. Uh, you also have like smaller collections of N G Ranga and Masani uh, that are there. Um, and then the I think there's sort of there are a lot of fragments, but they're just that from the U S. and the U K archives. I think the and then the the printed materials, uh, printed published materials, which again were sourced from places like Gokale in uh, in Pune, which I think is a really fabulous resource for people, um, and some you know uh, government orders from Rajgopalachari's time in Tamil Nadu that are that are there. What, what I would say is that I think with a project like this, where you're looking at um, some major nationalist figures, uh, it's almost it's almost natural that they would their papers would you know go to a place like the national at the national level rather than at the state or regional level um what i would say is that if one were to do a kind of deep down study of you know let's say you know rajgopalachari's time uh, you know between 1952 and 1954 as premier of uh, of 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 madras state i think for something like that a regional archive would be really useful um I think that because these are actors who are pr primarily operating outside the state, right? Regional archives of the state are not going to be that fruitful um, in terms of what one might find. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, and, and if I, if for example, I was more comfortable with uh, Telugu, right? I mean, I'm not comfortable with Telugu at all. Um, I might have spent some time in um, Andhra Pradesh, Telangana. Um, looking around for libraries of uh, to to see about to learn a little bit more about Ranga's relationship to his constituencies, and uh, you know to maybe even have some of the literature translated. Um, I did spend some time in Gujarat, uh, where I was able to source um, some of the materials that were written by Baikaka Patel, uh, and have some of those translated, especially his sort of phenomenal autobiography. So. I think in, so rather than archival materials, you can get printed text in regional languages uh, by some of these folks uh, that that really make uh, you know a fertile basis for studies. And in fact, in a section of my fourth chapter, um, a lot of it, the sort of vernacular perspective of Bailal Bai Patel, who is part of this uh, experiment to create a model uh, educational town next to Anand, which is where you know the home of Amul. Um, is something that comes almost purely uh, from his, uh, his his memoir, which of course I had to kind of read critically because he's sort of the hero of that of that narrative. So yes, I think that um, projects on the state, uh, as we kind of mm -hmm. move forward with this historiography, will really benefit from regional archives. And there are a number of regional archives that are actually really really well document, uh, you know, well resourced um, and have materials that extend well into the post-colonial period. I mean, I've heard good, very good things about Uttar Pradesh State Archives, for example. Um, but projects that are on, you know, extra state actors like mine, um, I would think, you know, regional libraries uh, 
um, and and you know actually field visits um, mm-hmm. to look for kind of built archives, you know, places where these people used to live, statues of them that were erected. Um, I think those are uh, really uh, fruitful avenues for uh, for research. Well, I want to just take a step back and, and place the book a little bit broadly. Yeah. Um, so the book decenters neoliberalism not as a set of ideas that flow from west to east, but as something that's grounded, that's endogenous and, and, and rooted in a specific context. That's the economic and social life in India. Um, which justified a more interventionist form of neoliberalism. Um, In another chapter on the issue, um, you write, and I quote here, neoliberalism has an Indian prehistory and even a present that should be acknowledged to contextualize developments in Indian society and economy. Even where neoliberalism is not hegemonic, it can contribute to policy discourses. But alone, neoliberalism is inadequate as a way of thinking about the guiding wisdom behind Indian economic policy. In other words, you will never find pure neoliberals in India, correct? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, to be clear, I think that the, the you know, that, that essay, um, which, I, which I wrote about India and the history of neoliberalism for a volume about... Um, you know, neoliberalism outside the heartland, you know, east and in in the in you know, Eastern Europe and in in the in the global south, um, is more about you know the the post nineteen ninety Indian Indian economy, um, and looking at the kind of genealogies of that in which you know Swatantra you know maybe has a part. But to be clear, I don't think that my protagonists are neoliberals; rather, that they engaged mainstream neoliberal ideas they're in converse some of them are in conversation with the likes of Friedman and Hayek um, but they're engaging them for specific purposes of their own right and they come to their and so I think that is still right the history of neoliberalism is not just about neoliberals right the history of neoliberalism is also about how when neoliberals you know and I mean that you know, may, I think of it more narrowly as folks who are associated with the Montpelerin society and, you know, subscribe to sort of Slobodian's understanding of this as a kind of law project. Um, it's also a history of contact with people uh, and 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 people who kind, uh, you know, who who have who are responding to a different set of questions and maybe appropriate some of the neoliberal rhetoric, right, of of sort of free markets, etc., for their own purposes, but are actually thinking of things that are quite different or not even as well formed, right? So we can't say that just because you find a letter from Hayek to, uh, you know, one of the economists who's advising the Sudantara party that this is therefore a neoliberal party, right? Because there are certain things like, you know, there are folks like Rajagopalachari who don't subscribe to methodological individualism, which is, you know, one of the bases for neoliberal thinking, right? It's a kind of combination of influences and, and impulses, right? Um, and I think that this is, it's important to generate this um, perspective, not merely from the perspective of neoliberalism studies, but also just more broadly from, the, if we're thinking about the way in which we practice uh, intellectual history, because there's a lot of discussion, and I think very valuable discussion about decolonizing the academy, Um but I think if we assume that practices in Asia and Africa and Latin America are derivative of ideas in the West, then we're kind of perpetuating colonial approaches to understanding the world, right? And so, and these are inaccurate, right? I think that what I've tried to sketch is how act- ideas actually take root in society, right? And so it's not about a conspiracy theory of economists sitting in a room somewhere and then their world 
kind of, you know, the, the world kind of catching their ideas like fire and spreading, right? It's a much more complicated and contingent set of things that's taking place. Um, and I think that the, I think that the, you know, the work of, of Amy Offner in her book, Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, where she identifies some of, you know, the roots of what we, what today we call neoliberal in the, uh, in, in, in organizations like the Tennessee Valley, Valley Authority, which are, you know, seen as, uh, you know, canonical examples of statist you know, government intervention um, can help unsettle some of those assumptions that we make. The the second kind of big idea which I was wrestling with was I I found the book the associational and the cultural aspects of the book yeah. really illuminating um, and, and a much needed corrective to the study of India's political economy, which is generally about the state. It's about the bureaucracy. Uh, and it's about the corporates, right? I think you have to have um, a sense of ideas here. You have to inject and understand ideas, the importance of ideas, uh, but also that ideas require agents um, and, and vehicles and, and strategies to succeed. Um, why do you think these perspectives are missing when understanding India's development? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really great question, and, and you know, thank you for that sort of sensitive reading of of the book, uh, Karthik. Um, so I think that economic history, as it's currently practiced, uh, it's practiced by a few people in 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 South Asian history, and probably increasingly, but it's is generally innocent in its approach from the history of ideas, um, and the history of ideas as it is practiced, or it's sort of you know, you know, South Asia's contribution to what is now called global intellectual. Figures. It's about like your Gandhis, your Nehru's, Ambedkar's, you know, Tilak, um, and so more inspired by you know, the work of people like you know, Robert Darnton, or and then the you know and the and the and to try to think about if we if we you know erase the distinctions between cultural, intellectual, economic, and think about how they're all linked to try to explain particular historical change. Um, and we're guided by the, the question rather than, and then, you know, use the methods as appropriate. Then what we see is that we have to look at ideas in material context and the two-way relationship between ideas and interests, right? Um, and so I think that it's basically the fact that methodologies have become a bit too too rigid and narrow um and so you know the the idea is to kind of puncture the boundaries between them to get a richer understanding of the uh, of the past the, there's a lot of um, newspapers in the book there's a lot of magazines journals yeah. um I, mean, I, I didn't see a lot of films and i, and I, and I kind of kept thinking about it um how do you explain the lack of popular Indian films that depict economic conservatism from, well, I mean, the only one I can think of was Mani Ratnam's Guru, which is a biopic of Ambani, that kind of dealt with it openly. Um, how, how do you explain that? Yeah, so I think, you know, just going back to your point about the 1950s and, you know, the lack of uh, work on the right, I think the 1950s is also a time where, you know, so in terms of the you know contemporary uh, resources uh from the time itself 
Um, this is a time when in the popular imaginary, the, you know, socialist and communist ideas are the ones that are, you know, making their way into cinema, right? And you have also like concrete institutional links between People's Theater and the Communist Party of India and the cinema industry. A lot of like, um, you know, lyricists, for example, like, you know, Shaban Azmi's father, Kaifi Azmi, are part of the CPI. And so they're writing uh, these kinds of things, uh, you know, they, you know, they're writing in a vein in which um, they're more sympathetic to to those kinds of ideas. Um, and you have, you know, figures like Balraj Sani, who are quite influential, who are, again, communist uh, attachments who are involved in cinemas. Um, and so broadly, I don't think there are too many films about economic ideologies in general. Um, but of course, you know, you have films like Kamala Hassan's Anbeshivam and the Hindi film Halabol, which are about you know, the late great communist Aftar Hashmi. And and today there's no shortage of cinema on agrarian themes. Uh, you know, and from the, you know, we have films like People Live and Asuran in the past, of course, Mother India, Dobigaz Amin. But I think part of the answer is, of course, that, you know, such films may not have much mass appeal. But since liberalization, I think this is where your observation about Guru is spot on, right? There is a valorizing of business, individual economic aspiration, consumption culture and market exchange that you have seen become increasingly prominent, right? In Guru, you have the celebrate, you know, it's film produced by the Ambani's, I might, I might add. Um, uh, and it's, it celebrates Dhirubhai and Reliance's rise. But on a different level, I also think, you know, films like Banbaja Bharat very much celebrate enterprise culture, right? Not economic conservatism per se, um, so when the protagonists, Bittu and Shruti, quit their apprenticeship, this is my favorite movie, so I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, uh, when they quit their apprenticeship with an unpleasant boss, they say to her, you know, they throw their caps and they say, Milte hai market mein, you know, which is as if the, the great leveler is the market, right? And their major ambition is to get to the farmhouses of Delhi, of Sainik farms, to be the wedding planners there. But there's also a certain kind of principled activity, which is that they use fair practices. They say, look, I'm not going to steal electricity from power lines, right? I'm not going to undercharge. There's a sort of exchange with one of their suppliers where they're like, look, I have to actually, you know, I promised them a certain number of flowers and I'm not going to skimp on that. Um, so I think there are films that are, you know, getting into that, but it was certainly not the, the vibe, so to speak, um, in the early, earlier era. Um, and I think now we also see, you know, we're, uh, you know, films that are confronting political economy, um, head on uh, and, and, and look at the conservative forces in Indian society. For example, you know, in the, from the 90s, we've seen this sort of sickle building genre of Tamil cinema, right, that valorizes, you know, landowning dominant castes. Um, we have the work of, you know, Ranjit that's, that's, uh, that's looking at uh, a number of these things. And, you know, in, even in the even in the popular genre of the Rajinikanth film, he's looking at, you know, land rights and dispossession in a film like uh, like Kala. So I think Films about economic conservatism, not quite. Uh, films about enterprise culture and uh, valorizing of some of the, uh, you know, the things that economic conservatives uh, celebrate, absolutely. And a portrayal of conservative forces in Indian political economy, for sure. Now, what was the hardest part of writing the book? So I'm afraid that my answer is, is rather generic in that I found the most difficult part of writing the book was, uh, you know, struck writing a clear argument. And, um, you know, I was really, uh, really fortunate uh, to have, a, a, you know, a friend and, and, and mentor uh, uh, who kept saying, man, you really got to work on your writing. Um, and like, you know, this is not this is not an argument. And I remember I had a manuscript workshop and, and you know, very esteemed 
historian, uh, Jonathan Levy, uh, historian of capitalism, uh, said to me, you know, I, I know this is always a tough question, but like, what is your argument? And I thought, wow, after seven years, eight years, I don't have an argument, you know, God help me. Uh, so I think, you know, some historians have a very clear pre-analytic vision and sort out their research question uh, before commencing their research, right? I think particularly those who are trained in the social sciences. Um, for me, it's always been the case that I try to build an argument uh, from the materials that I find. Uh, and that's not to say that those other historians are, um, you know, inimical to empirics, but it's just that they have a better framework for the material that they, they see um, uh, before they go out and look at it. So after a while, and, you know, for a while, you know, I started as an undergraduate with very little historical training. So I kind of got lost in the materials, right? So if you're lucky to read, a, you know, a village student's, you know, 10-page letter to Rajagol Palachari, where he, every five sentences he writes, you know, Ilea Tata, which is like, you know, isn't that right, grandfather, on where India should be going? Or, you know, something like Njiranga's Credo of World Peasantry. Um, it's the guy who's read everything from, you know, the Black Jacobins to, um, you know, the, the webs on political economy. Um, it's easy to get lost in the richness of that, and especially because a lot of this stuff hasn't been written about before. Um, but I think just going back and write, always asking, you know, what does it mean and why does this matter? Um, is to me, you know, a fundamental challenge. And, you know, I, I think this is something that a lot of established, so this is an early career person's problem, but I think it's also a, a later career historian's problem too, which is that when people become established and they kind of have free reign to write about what they want, they kind of go into, you know, exploring more kind of hobby-based things and they kind of often lose the analytic thrust of what they're doing. And I think that that's, you know, it's fine. People make their choices, but it is something that I think we always have to kind of go back to and think, you know, what exactly are we, are we arguing here? So that was the major challenge. I think the second biggest challenge was um, learning to read and write Tamil. I mean, I'm a native Tamil speaker, but uh, Tamil is a diglossic language and there were no real resources to learn at uh, where at the university of Cambridge, where I was completing my doctoral work. So kind of had to pick it up on this like shady website that no longer exists. And I'm not, no, not really an expert, but I was able to work with, uh, with the book's Tamil sources, I think adequately and uh, with what I have and, and kind of drawn the help of, of friends and family. And so, so that was another, um, you know, uh, tough, tough thing to, to, to do. And, you know, I'm still, still have to read a newspaper with difficulty and looking up the dictionary and all of that, but it's something that um, I think is important uh, to, to, to uh, put yourself through. And, and finally, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I'm working on a couple things. Uh, so in the shorter term, uh, I hope to complete this essay on basically the explosion of eucalyptus planting in India between the 1960s and the 1980s and the controversies that this has created, which have led, for example, to high courts in states like Karnataka and Madras banning its plantation. So on the one hand, eucalyptus is this magic bullet that helps India generate um, pulp and fuel would meet its you know development demands. But on the other hand, and it does you know it grows four times as fast as most other um, pulp and fuel yielding species uh, or genuses. Um, but on the other hand, its high water requirements foment resource conflict, and planting of eucalyptus becomes embedded in you know planting plantation agriculture, which dispossesses adivasis and compromises and monoculture kind of compromises biodiversity. So that's sort of one thing. And then there is a sort of medium term project that I've started working on on the history of roads and road transport. Um, so most of India's road network, which is the world's second largest, is built after 1947. Um, and these are mainly village and district level roads. 
So India is a country where multiple kinds of road transportation from the sort of bullock to the SUV share the road. And so it's a very concrete manifestation of a sort of alternate path to to modernity or multiple um, forms of political economy are, uh, you know, ex- coexisting. Um, so I'm interested in road building as a kind of dem- democratic demand and a demonstration of governance. Um, and then also in the nexus between business and government that explains a persistence of, you know, low quality and unbuilt but promised roads. And then also India's, you know, transition to motorized transport in the in the 20th century. Right. And that was Aditya Balasubramanian, the author of Toward a Free Economy, Swatantra and Opposition Politics in Democratic India. I'm Karthik Nachupan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast. <laughs>